The spiritual benefits of nature is the topic. Simon Jacobson here. And um, we find it very fascinating. I'd say also deeply underappreciated relationship we have with nature. On one hand, nobody can exist. Our survival is, our very survival is completely dependent on nature on the cycles of nature, on the balance of nature, on the harmony of nature, whether it's the nature of our human bodies and our functions and our faculties, or it's the nature around us, oxygen, the water we drink, the air we breathe, the food we consume, the seasons. And today we even appreciate and recognize so much of the scientific understandings of the different factors. If they were a little off, if the sun was a little more distant from Earth, um, or a little too close to Earth, the tides, the, the lunar cycles, how all these things create the environment for what we call life and the sustenance of life. On the other hand, as much as we're dependent on nature, we often are not even aware to the extent. It's like we can just go through our lives and not even noticing. We only notice it when something's missing. How many of us think about how much oxygen we breathe and how often we breathe? Or the other factors of nature that affect us? We may study about it, but in our daily lives it's something that we can almost completely ignore. There was a time, especially in agricultural society, in the agricultural age, where literally people were connected with nature and its cycles. For example, rains. If it didn't rain, the crops wouldn't grow and there was a famine. People worked in the fields, recognized and aligned themselves with the seasonal changes and other factors that were directly linked to our lives and our survival. However, in our highly technological universe, we most of us don't even notice it any longer. We don't work in the fields. We can protect ourselves from the elements and from the natural, uh, whether it's from the rains or from the winters or from the harsh winters. And we can live in a world where we completely are oblivious and don't notice all these factors. Is that a healthy thing? You know, we could argue maybe it's fine. That it's so invisible, like health is so invisible that you don't even feel it. But you could also argue that not being in touch and not being aware of the forces that really keep us alive maybe have all kinds of implications. And what are those implications? And on a deeper level... Does nature have a soul? Does it have any relationship with us, with our spiritual, psychological, emotional lives? Because if we are so intrinsically bound with the nature around us, there must be a deeper reason for that. So this is part of what I'll be discussing, which is really about our awareness, about our connection with the things that uh, give us life and sustenance, and about all the factors, the forces that we often ignore that we can learn tremendous insights from if we just pay attention. We all know that when we're, when we're in nature, when we go into a beautiful meadow, or we smell beautiful flowers, or we um, witness and stand in awe of a natural wonder, these things have deep impact on us. The harmony of it, the balance of it, the sheer uh, uh, precision, and in so many different ways. But is it just 
an intriguing thing? Is it just a voyeuristic type of experience where we see a sensational, uh, a sensational event? Or is there something deeper to it? And as is usual, the, th- the thrust that I take in this class is to take events that happen that on one hand, on an obvious level, seem one way, but when you look deeper and you dig deeper, you find fascinating and uh, deeper and surprising, even surprising insights into ourselves. So really the question really comes down to what is nature and who are we? If you go by your life in a very, if we live our lives in a very superficial level, uh, let's say an adult life, and your primary concerns are to um, meet, make your ends meet, make a living, uh, survive on a material level, find pleasure in life, find love, find intimacy, companionship, and the other things that we list in our so-called order of priority. If you live on that level, which many people do live on that, what we call survival level. Survival doesn't mean the minimum. You can be very prosperous. But your life is basically uh, driven by the here and now, what you experience on a sensory level, on a conscious level. Then one could argue that uh, you can get by with that. So why rock the boat? However, as we all know, life is more complicated than that. People wouldn't be going to therapy, and people wouldn't be struggling with anxiety and with other addictions, uh, with addictions and other challenges if, everything could, if you could just live a life of animal bliss and just breed and uh, take care of yourself and your young and your children and, um, as I said, make ends meet and just manage. We are complicated people. We have a spirit that's restless. And we seek to succeed. And success isn't only satisfying when it's materialistic success. We all have what we'll call transcendental needs, spiritual aspirations, dreams. We dream and we imagine. And this is part and parcel of inherent to the human spirit and the human nature. I've discussed many times why we are that way. The classic example is that the soul of a human being, the spirit of a human being is compared to a flame. And like a flame, a flame is always flickering and moving and restless, and a flame is always licking the heavens, the sky. It's licking, it's, 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 it defies gravity and seeks something beyond itself. And so too are spirits. So we are not satisfied just with survival. And uh, at times we can get away with it, but especially when, there is, uh, when things, when we get shaken up by trauma, by loss, by death, by changes, by things that are unexpected that we didn't prepare for, then the only place to turn to is inward to find deeper strength. And this is something we all look for. In addition, when you talk about actualizing yourself and you're actualizing your potential, to, get it, to just get by on a very basic level is not going to reach excellence. To achieve excellence, you have to push yourself. And to push yourself means you have to struggle and you have to um, be challenged. And you have sometimes to actually go through difficult moments that push you and force you, like, just like the, the olive produces oil when it's pressed. The spirit produces power and, and strength and excellence when it is pressured. So all that contributes to a life that is difficult to just say we're going to get by on a superficial level. Then there's some of us who are just wired that we can't even get by superficially because we do have deeper spiritual uh, and, uh, and soulful and um, creative energy a type of free-spiritedness, and we're looking to satisfy that. A certain type of like um, what we call the, the rebel, 
without a cause, the rebellious spirit that's looking to, trans, trans, to, to, tra, to transcend the status quo, but doesn't always know how to. As I've discussed many times, that if you really identify the root of most people's problems even, even addictions, things that we get in trouble with, you can always identify it, and there's always a positive root for it all. It's a spirit looking is hungry. When you are hungry and your spirit is hungry, you're going to look for something to satisfy that hunger. Just like a very thirsty person looking for, is desperate for a drink. So if it's a healthy drink, great, but sometimes you can end up drinking something that's toxic. But the thirst is so deep that you just go for whatever it is. And this really explains so much of how we can get caught up in obsessions and all kinds of other forces that take control of over our lives because the hunger is a healthy one. But how you're satisfying the hunger may not be healthy. So the fact of the matter is the human spirit is of a nature that always it looks for something deeper. Some people call the search for meaning. You can call the search for pleasure. You can call the search for transcendence. Whatever words you want to use for it. But there is that part of who we are. And as, we, as, as long as we don't feed that part of ourselves, we will never be content and satisfied. Even when we do feed it, we always, will always want to aspire to even more and grow even further. So to get back to this topic of, um, that we're discussing here, which is the issue of, of uh, finding, of looking into nature, then if you think about it, on a surface, surface level, yes, we can all get by life. The sun rises, the sun sets, the moon rises, the moon sets, the cycles of, of the seasons, and all the other natural forces that affect our lives. So if you happen to be a scientific buff and you're interested in the science of it, you can study the processes that are out there, the chemical and the biological and the scientific and the physics of nature to understand how the world functions and how we are beneficiaries of the, 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 the nature around us. But that, as I said before, can be an academic exercise. However, when you start thinking of yourself as a soul, as a person who is, as, as some thinkers say, not that we're physical beings on a spiritual journey, but we're spiritual beings on a physical journey, then, if, if you're indeed a spiritual being, then the way to look at things, then everything around you has more than just a surface level. It's not just an, a superficial dimension. There's also an inner dimension. And that's where you begin to find an unbelievable connection, a, symbio- a symbiosis, a symbiotic connection between us and the nature around us. So to begin with a uh, principle that is a, a somewhat of a, I mean, it's Talmudic-based, but it's really used extensively in mystical teachings and in Kabbalistic teachings, esoteric teachings, the concept of microcosm, macrocosm, which today is verified by science, and that is that existence is like a hologram, not but a fragmented pieces. Everything is interconnected. And things that are on a macrocosmic level can be, can be discovered on a microcosm in the most microscopic thing you, in dimension you can find in a, the, most, uh, the same, uh, same model and the same structure as the macrocosm, which is, in the words of the Medrash, goes like this, that the human being is a small universe, a universe and microcosm, and the universe is a large organism. So perhaps when it was read thousands of years ago, it could have been seen as a metaphor or as some type of superstition. But today this makes total sense. We know this to be a fact. For example, look at the DNA, the DNA of a human being, and all stem cell research and all that, that the basic elements, the basic building blocks of existence are all the same. 
The same is true on a physics level, on a subatomic level, subatomic particles. Everything, once upon a time, we saw the universe in a very fragmented, in a very the, the, the diverse multitudes, many different parts. And they, then, they, then science began to discover that everything comes down to a hundred and some elements. And those elements are made up of molecules, and those molecules are made up of atoms. And it comes down to the, the basic building blocks, the so-called the zero and ones in computer programming of existence are all the same features. They're just different combinations. And hence you have the idea of microcosm, macrocosm, that everything in existence is made up of the same pieces, just a different type of combinations. And, of course, the fact is that subatomic particles right here, as we know in quantum mechanics, sense things that are happening billions of miles away, which leads to the different theories, string theory and other theories, to explain this integral unity that defines existence. That as much as we have diverse systems, there is an integral unity. And the same comes back to the human being. We two are the same thing. Our DNA can be found in all parts of our being, so even though we have different limbs and organs and systems, but there's a certain DNA sequence of our genome, which they're busy in the middle of mapping, that makes the building blocks of life. And this is basic science today and basic understanding. How does it relate to what we're discussing? In that sense, what is fascinating is not just that it's a metaphor, but the idea is that everything that exists in larger nature exists within human nature. Meaning that if there's a sun and moon out there, we, we too have a sun archetype and a moon and a lunar archetype within our beings. If there's mineral, vegetable, animal, and human, we too have mineral, the, the bones that we have, the teeth. We have the vegetable, the things that grow like hair, nails. And then we have our animal spirit, and then we have, of course, the human dimension. So basically, all of nature that we look around us is actually giving us a reflection of ourselves, which explains why some of the Hasidic masters say that everything you see in here is a lesson in your life. Not just because an interesting lesson, it's because when you see and hear it, it resonates with something within you. And this is a really can be a comprehensive study where you can find literally parallels between the larger nature around us and our own personal lives. Not just parallel, but also lessons. Because so at the end of the day, the human being and the natural world around us are not, are not separate entities. We're all part of one symphony, one part of one reality, and it's just different dimensions of it. And when you think of it that way, it's not just that we're dependent on nature for our sustenance, but we actually are one and the same with nature. Which is why we feel so comfortable when we go into a natural setting. Whether it's whether it's the beauty of nature, the harmony of nature, whether we go into water or other elements of nature, what happens? We feel a certain balance. We feel a certain serenity because it is our natural place. Remember that for nine months in our mother's womb, what were we subject to? Not man-made things. Completely part of the natural process that God put into place, which is that you're in your mother's womb and the miraculous way the, the, that womb nurtures you for nine months. You sustained by the food and the and the and the, and the liquids and the water and the, even oxygen and everything coming through. From from the womb, the the, the fetus developing in that place. 
So we are by nature, by, by, so we're fundamentally linked into nature simply from the beginning of our conception. And then when we come out into this world and they cut the umbilical cord and we begin to function as human beings, then we become subject to the toxins and to the man-made forces that can pollute us and can in some way cause us to waver away from our natural selves. So actually nature, therefore, is like the best example of what you look like in the purest form, like a newborn child, because people have not yet so-called distorted or in any way damaged or abused that individual. So if you think of it that way, think of it like this, that we, if you were to ask yourself, what is the natural you as opposed to the person you've evolved into becoming in order to make it in this hostile world? It could be very two different personalities. The personality you are as you were born, like a freshly fallen snow, to use a natural me- metaphor, is exactly that. It's freshly fallen, it's innocent and pure. But then life tramples upon us. What that means is whether, I'm not even necessarily talking abuse right now. Life, the challenges of life, it wears us down. And as it wears us down, we lose that pristine purity that, that we are in our natural selves. So in a way you can say, if a, one pers- if a person wants to find uh, happiness, wants to find um, contentment, wants to find purpose to their lives, you have to really go back to see what is the natural you versus the superimposed you. To put it very simply, bluntly, if someone, uh, you know, all of us wear different masks. When we go to work, different people, we wear different masks. To, to satisfy or to maneuver or even to manipulate the situation we're in. Most of us will not say I'm comfortable just bearing all and just speaking openly to any person. We know we can be hurt if we do that. So each of us has our, you can set our set of armor our, uh, that we wear to protect ourselves and what we project. Now, sometimes it could be a uh, healthy form of projection, but often it could be very deceptive too, almost duplicitous. And that's how it is. Why? Because we live in a world where people we don't necessarily trust. Before we establish and develop trust, we need to protect ourselves. So we have our different masks that we wear. We have our different um, personalities you know, most people where they are at work are not going to be exactly the same way when they're at home with the closest people in their lives or when you are with yourself. So how many people can really say, I have a friend that I can completely be open with without fear of judgment, without fear of critique, without fear of condescension, without all those elements that we usually need to maneuver? That's very rare to have someone like that. So, so what we do is we... Adjust. We adjust. What are we adjusting? We're adjusting our natural reaction. Like, you know, for example, if your boss is abusive and insulting, you just learn to swallow it. Not everybody. Some people fight back and then they get fired or whatever happens. But many people just begin to swallow it. So you start swallowing your own natural reaction to things and you begin to become a victim or an enabler, whatever you want to call it. The same thing is in our homes. Children naturally are, are healthy human beings. I mean, a healthy psyche. And if the parents are healthy, they'll cultivate a sense of a nurture in the children, the natural confidence, a natural sense of um, self-esteem, uh, validation necessary to make decisions, to maneuver in this world. But what happens if the parents are not healthy? And they criticize the child consistently, incessantly, 
do not validate, or even worse, actually abuse one way or another. What do you have, have the child? The natural instincts of the child that would have just grown in a very healthy way begin to become repressed. So the child has to crawl back into itself and has to like withhold, refrain from natural reactions. I mean, how many times have I heard from people say, I could never express my real feelings because my father would say, would, would absolutely go ballistic if I did that. Some people say I couldn't even cry because I was told that only babies cry. So these are environments where forcing our natural self not to be itself and suddenly have to assume a different personality. Now, in extreme traumatic situations, we actually assume a different personality. We literally can say another personality emerges. That's why you'll have the concept of -of out-of-body experiences and people having a real conflict between two voices inside of them. The voice that they had to project that became their new personality in order to survive, in order to make it, to cope. And the other personality that was put away in a closet and locked up because it couldn't express itself. So these things have very serious implications as we grow older in how we trust others and how we are open ourselves up or don't open ourselves up. People that go through such forms of we'll call it splits in their schisms in their personalities, when they, have, when they grow older and have to develop and, and, and enter into relationships, I'm talking about emotional relationships with people, there will always be distortions. Emotional relationships will be, un, they'll be unbalanced. There'll be extremes. There won't be an even relationship. There'll be trust issues. There'll be a lot of testing. There'll be um, extremes, basically. Either over-trust or under-trust, and will not have that balanced flow that's necessary in a good, healthy relationship. So here's a perfect example of how our natures, our very nature of what makes us function, gets distorted. So it's obvious, therefore, how, wh- why it's so vital. To, if you can look to nature around you and look at the, at the cycles of the seasons, or every aspect of nature, you actually can learn lessons of how to realign your own, natural, your own self to your natural self. Because nature, the world's nature, does, does not, is not subject to these distortions. We can distort it, obviously. You know, whether it's uh, human, uh, the emissions that we, uh, the emissions that we uh, release that cause uh, the ozone layer to be depleted, or the plastics and the other synthetic materials that poison the, wa- the waters, or other forms of um, pollution, we can upset the balance of nature. But left, leave nature on its own, it does not get distorted because nature does not have a choice. It's like a clock. It works, it works the way it's supposed to work. So it's only the human that can actually unbalance nature. So imagine that. So our role is really, the healthy approach is to look at nature and say, okay, what can I learn from it in my own balances and my own harmony and, and discovering my own inner harmony. So in that sense, the natural universe, which includes us, microcosm, macrocosm, is all one, like think of it as one big jigsaw puzzle. And each piece is necessary for the other piece. So though we may not understand it fully, but yes, when the sun rises at a certain point, exactly that moment, in some way that creates a balance that affects our personal lives. Now in some ways we can recognize it, in some ways we don't recognize it. And everybody knows about jet lag. What happens is that when you know, the human body recognizes, for example, when it turns night. Something happens when the sun sets, the human body adjusts to night. 
and prepares itself for a more low slows down and the machine to ultimately when we go to sleep. What happens when you travel to another time zone and in a way that you went faster than the natural journey? So you suddenly find yourself in another place 12 hours later and there it's a completely different cycle and you suddenly, let's say, lost a day or lost a night or lost six hours. So your body goes out of sync. Why? Because your body's in sync with nature. That's just one example. And there are thousands of such examples. Now we can find the ways to adjust. And with time we do adjust. Same thing, for example, when you go to high altitudes. If you don't drink enough water, you don't prepare, acclimate yourself and anticipate, you start getting out of breath and it has an effect on you. So we are bound to nature in more ways than one and more ways than we'll ever imagine. But that's on a very physical level. The same thing is on a psychological level and an emotional level. Our connection with nature is that nature is there for us to set an environment and a stage, a platform, for us to be the healthiest we can be. And nature is like a teacher. It teaches us how to be healthy. Now you'll say, what about natural, so-called natural disasters? Hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes? So I've, as, as I've discussed a number of times, especially in the hurricane seasons, um, that even that is also part of the balance of nature. The reason we call it a disaster is only because human beings are in its path. But you know how many earthquakes happen a day? There's an earthquake that happens every few minutes on, in, the, in, under, on the, in the oceans. And the same thing with volcanoes. So there's a certain natural balance that even these so-called expressions, hurricanes and so on, are like, think of it like they are market corrections. A hurricane is like a massive vacuum cleaner that, that balances out extreme, extreme um, discrepancies in the pressure systems. And the same thing with an earthquake. An earthquake is the crusts of the earth crushing against each other to release the tension. So there's a form of an earthquake. So think of it in that sense, a volcano erupting because there's the molten rock and there's the heat as it rises to the surface, needs release. Imagine a kettle where the water is boiling and there's no spout. A volcano is actually, if there were no volcanoes, the whole earth could explode. So a volcano is actually a release of the tension of that extreme heat at the core of the earth as it rises up to the surface. So all these things, if you think of them purely as natural, natural events, they all have a purpose and a very important purpose. Without them, we would not have existence. Now the same thing, let's take a lesson from that, a personal lesson. We also at times, when a person has a lot of anxiety or is upset, so like a spout, we, a spout of, a, of a kettle, of a boiling kettle, or like the opening of a volcano, we need to erupt. Eruption is, in an unhealthy way, it can be extreme anger and rage. A healthy way is a way of venting. We do have an ability and we have a way to vent in a healthy way. If you don't vent, like I mentioned before with children who experience things that are uh, hurtful, they don't express it. It's going to bottle, become bottled up and the body becomes as knots. And we know the body has memories and it causes a whole upsetting of our system. We need to be able to express ourselves. That's why in any type of therapy, you always find break the silence. You have to get it out of your system. And that is a direct lesson. You can look at nature. You see that all the time. Tensions have to be relieved. So I'm just using one example among many. The point being here is that, 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 that nature, besides the fact that it provides the resources, 
um, the resources and the ability for us to live and function physically, it also provides spiritual benefits. Spiritual benefits as in allowing our souls to have uh, a teacher, a given the best teacher is nature, basically. Nature can teach us things. Even from a point of view of inventions, look at it, the naked, the human eye is the model for the camera. The bird is a model for an airplane. Um, in architecture, the most efficient way of using space is hexagons. Hexagons. So if you want to build, let's say, in a small space, many different uh, units in architecture, if you do circles, you're always going to waste space because circles, that when they meet each other, there's always going to be empty space. Hexagons are the most efficient way. Where did we learn this? We learned it from the honeycombs of bees. If you look how a honeycomb, it's hexagons because that's the most efficient way of using space and also you can enter from so many different directions. So nature is the best teacher because nature is symbiotic and connected to who we are. We are a microcosm of the entire universe. So that creates a far deeper connection than just the fact that there's a physical, the physical benefits. So let's take an example. Let's take an example of, um, I'll use several examples. Um, Cross-pollination. So cross-pollination is bees. They take the nectar which they consume and turn it into a, a, a type of, uh, which is their sustenance, turn it into a nectar that then they carry from one plant or one flower to another flower. Since flowers cannot, cannot mate like animals, they can't come to each other. So the way it was made, that the bees become so-called the shatchan. The bees become the matchmakers, where they carry the, 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 from the, the pollen from one plant to another, and that's how they cross-pollinate, and that's how flowers perpetuate. The perfect balance in that. Today we find the concept of cross-pollination is used often in the context of incubators, where you get different talents together and let's cross-pollinate. Different organizations, different entities, different uh, initiatives, cross-pollinate, each one feeding the other. So we have a direct lesson from nature of how we can co- not just coexist, but cooperate with each other and create interconnectivity. So if you really want lessons and you look in books that talk about business management or cooperation in corporate level, we have many different individuals and everyone has different interests. One of the best ways to find lessons is look at how nature cross-pollinates. And this is not just in the flower world and the bees. It's in all areas of life you'll find how creatures and, nat- and, and, veg- and the, world of veg- the vegetable world and the mineral world even all, all, all are symbiotic in that way where they all give and take and they all cross-pollinate in the broad sense of the word. So if you want a real lesson in management, in, inter- in cooperation, even in marriage for that matter, one of the greatest lessons is look at nature. Look how each creature or each entity does its part as it works with another. It gives and takes and everyone has their moment. Now, yes, you do have competition, obviously. You have predator and prey. But even that has a balance. As we know, predator and prey keep the balance of nature. If you did not have certain predators, the prey would multiply to points where they would destroy. Remember back in the, um, I'm reading back in Yellowstone Park, there was a point where they, the, 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 the wolves 
almost went extinct. As the wolves went extinct, the elk began to multiply in numbers and they would completely eat up all the vegetation to the point that they were even dying from hunger because there was no vegetation left. And the same thing is with insects and so on, that if there's no predator, the prey that they're supposed to... That's why there's the rule that the more... Thing, the, more an, the more an item is consumed, the more it multiplies. There are far more vegetables and grasses and shrubs in the world than there are animals. There are far more smaller animals than there are larger animals. So the ones that are predators always multiply less. The prey always multiply more. So it's actually even to keep the populations balanced, you also need that. And it's fascinating when you look at the food chain in the oceans. If million, even thousands of miles away, if for some reason some water gets polluted and the algae are not to, don't develop, then certain fish that eat that, they will die out. And when those fish die out, then the other parts of the food chain begin to suffer and it could lead to a whole cycle that will ultimately affect the human being. Now, nature has a very powerful way of regenerating itself. So even when there are pollutants, you know, think of a forest fire, which is yet another lesson in life. I went on one of these tours where they take you to these forests and they can actually identify the places where there were fires. And they show you how what happens after a fire in a forest, how it regenerates. As a matter of fact, it's actually healthy for forests to have fires because it's a way of cleansing and rebuilding. It's a tremendous lesson in how you rebuild after loss. Nature teaches us how to do that. So something can burn. Initially, the burning is obviously, we're talking about hopefully that it's not causing any harm to anyone, any human beings. But a forest fire that's out there and no one's affected by it. So it, what it does is it destroys a lot of the bacteria and a lot of the, the, the pollutants that, are, that destroy the, 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 these forests. And then it begins to regenerate. And the regeneration is just amazing to watch. You see like a whole new generation, a whole new fresh generation of growth in these forests. Now, if you think about that, that's a perfect lesson for loss and growing from, through loss for a human being. Many of us, when there's a loss or there's some type of fire in our lives, I mean metaphorically, we sometimes get so devastated and we don't have the strength to rebuild. We get demoralized, broken, bitter. So look at nature. There's no such thing in nature that something gets bitter and says we can't manage. You always manage. Because nature has its ability, as I said, God to put into it a program that it knows how to manage. You think about trees and uh, roots, which is one of the reasons I'm talking about this topic th- this evening, because today was the new year for trees, Tu Bishvat. So you look at trees, fascinating. A tree grows, and if you put a wall in the way of the tree, what will the tree do? It will naturally grow away from the wall. It will find a way. Look at roots. The roots will spread out and go in all different directions looking for sustenance. Every one of these things is a lesson in life. That means the roots don't give up and say, oh, if we didn't find water in one place, that's it. They'll spread in all different directions. I don't know if you ever heard this, but when NASA first sent human being, first humans to outer space, so it was the first time humans experienced zero gravity or low gravity because they didn't have, they weren't under the gravitational pull of the earth. So they had to prepare for that. And it was interesting, they sent a bunch of experiments what would happen in a place where gravity is not such a factor. You see it in the images and the, and the videos of the astronauts in outer space, how they float, uh, because the gravitational pull is not there. 
So one of the experiments they sent with them were plants. They sent a plant on one of those, those space missions into outer space. A plant. A plant, of course, has a plant grows and the roots grow down to find sustenance. So they wanted to know what would happen to a plant in outer space where there's no ground, there's no earth. You know what happened? The plant came back with roots all around the whole plant, not just at the bottom. The whole plant was grotesque because it had no center of gravity to look for, so the roots grew everywhere, on the top, on the sides, on the bottom, because they were looking for a place to go to. On Earth, there's a certain, there's a gravitational pull, and the roots go down under the ground, and they look for, this, for, for moisture. But on, in outer space, there's no ground, so they grew all over the place, like seeking a center, seeking a, uh, a, 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 a core point, which only teaches us, again, the same lesson, that we are human beings, if we allow ourselves to learn from the spiritual, uh, the spiritual messages of nature, you realize that you can always find sustenance. And you never give up, because if it's not in this direction, you go a different direction. And you adjust. And there's that resilience that we learn from nature. I'm not going to go through every example. I mean, every. There is impossible to go through every. But just trying to make the point of how uh, nature turns into becoming some far more than just a silent bystander that uh, we don't know that that we don't even notice. That si- it could be silent that hums along quietly, and we can just do our thing, or we can realize that it is our partner in life, and that when you look at it, it can actually teach you tremendous lessons. It can actually even comfort you. Because nature has that ability of its consistency, the loyish consistency, that you know that it's always going to be there. And that's a very powerful message in consistency, you know, loyalty. You have friends, sometimes they're called, uh, that when it comes to rainy weather, they're never around. They're only there when things are good. There's a loyalty and there's a consistency, which is why you find in the Torah, you'll find sometimes an expression where Moses says, Hazino Hashemayim, he says the heaven and earth should be witnesses. Why? Because heaven and earth are natural forces, or sometimes the sun and the moon. And these natural forces have a certain consistency that you can say that even though I may not be here, but in a thousand years from now, there'll still be a sun that's shining. So the same sun that shined 3,000 years ago, the same moon that Moses looked at when God showed him that this is the moon, the new moon when you will leave Egypt, that same moon still shines now. So those are lessons of certain type of consistency that no matter what you go through, nature continues on its march and is there for us to provide us with that type of security, that type of um, consistency that I'm, I'm describing. And you can go on and on in different examples. When you look at the prayers, we say, you'll see, there's an expression. The heavens tell the story of divine glory. Nature tells a story. And when you look closely at nature, each part of nature tells us another story about ourselves, about the world around us, about our inner psyches, about dealing with good times, dealing with challenging times. Every, all the lessons are there. Just like we say, from my flesh I behold God, the same thing is from our natural flesh, the same thing is from the flesh of the universe, from the natural cycles and balances and imbalances of life around us, you also can behold much and literally everything has tremendous lessons. So I know we are human beings that 
life can get very monotonous. We get bored with certain things. But if you really are able to look and pierce the surface and look deeper into things, you suddenly realize of that life is brimming with energy all the time. This is not a boring life. On the surface level, it appears that way, but there's pulsating energy in everything that's going on. First of all, the subatomic world is always alive. That a concept that things are inanimate is a myth today. We know that it's a myth. It was always a myth, but today we know that when you see something, the room is never empty. There's always energy flowing. And it's just our job and our mission is to find and discover it in a deeper, passable way. So, nature in that sense is part of our lives and we're part of nature. And there are, as I said, tremendous lessons that we can learn from each detail and each aspect of these experiences. It reminds me of the story I tell or share often where um, one of the great rebbes was walking with his young son. They were walking in a, uh, in a garden or in a field or in a beautiful place, meadow. And um, um, and the younger son ripped off a little leaf, you know, just inadvertently and began to rub it. And his father said to him, what right do you have? He reprimanded him. What right do you have to disturb the trajectory of this leaf in the field? Just for what? To rub it. Which tells you the sanctity of nature. Not just for environmental purposes and not just because we are, um, but, but because there's sanctity to life and there's sanctity to nature. And though we may not understand it, that little leaf has its own purpose and its own journey. We may never appreciate it, but it's part of the whole function of, of existence. And that is what he was teaching him. So imagine having a life that wherever you walk, wherever you tread, literally every detail of our lives has that type of the soul of the leaf, not just the body of it. So it's not just the scientific element, but there, there is an actually spiritual connection between every detail of existence and our own personal lives. So in the final analysis, I'll say this. The nature around us is a teacher, is a guide, can also be a comforter. And it's something that we should learn to appreciate that it was given to us as a tool and a resource to be able to grow in our lives. Now, I think about it, it'd be great to write some books, or many books, of lessons that you can learn from nature when it comes to a different particular situation. What you learn, let's say, after a long night, the sun rises, no matter what teaching us that no matter how difficult things sometimes can be, the sun will ultimately rise. So in that sense, you can really, each of us can look at different, we could even make it a, maybe a collective project where we all can apply ourselves and find different things in nature that can help us in that particular fashion. I want to, um, um, Shana, I want to just take a break for a moment. So let it, let it run. I'll be back in a moment, okay? I have to stop.
Okay, we we'll call this part two. Sorry about that. <clears throat> Nature has its ways. Um, in Hebrew, to continue, the word for nature is teva. Teva. Which is, what does the word teva mean? So some places it says that teva or ha- is, uh, comes from the word submerged. Like tovu biyamsuf. Submerged in the water. What's the connection to nature? Because when you throw something into water, an object, anything, what happens? It disappears under the cover of the water, and as if you don't see it, all you see is the, the water surface. It's the same thing with nature. When you look at nature, you don't necessarily see the forces that are shaping the invisible hand that's driving nature. You know, you, just, you, could, you could chalk it up. It's an act of nature. It's a natural event. And, uh, and something that we get used to, and we just think of it as, okay. So we don't see... So nature conceals so-called the forces behind nature. But then when you go, let's say, underwater with cameras, uh, scuba diving, you suddenly see there's a whole world beneath the surface. The same thing is with nature. On the surface level, you can, you can, you can see it's a rule, the rules of nature, laws of nature. Someone say it's a natural event. The Alter Rebbe and Tanya says something very powerful. He says, when you say something is nature, anything you don't understand, you just say it's a natural event. It's interesting, I pointed this out a number of times, that when it comes to um, insurance policies, they don't call it acts of nature, they call it acts of God. Like they'll say, this policy covers these and these damages, but things like tornadoes or hurricanes or, uh, or uh, tsunamis and other acts of God are not covered. So I once asked a, uh, an, an attorney, insurance attorney, I said, why do they write acts of God, you know? That many people don't believe in God. And what, where, where are all the, the atheists that come and say, listen, there's, there's a separation of church and state. How could you mention God in every insurance policy? Why should they write acts of nature? He said, because if you write acts of nature, you could still leave open the argument who's responsible for an act of nature. Is it the insurance, the insurer, or the insured? Whereas if you say acts of God, you could always say it's God's fault. It's not nothing to do with, uh, with any of us. So that way the, insurance, the insurers are completely protected that they don't have to cover it. So in other words, God is convenient as a scapegoat when necessary. This, that's, as a, that's a footnote. But acts of nature, you say nature. What really is nature? So the Baal Shem Tov, great founder of Hasidic thought and the mystic, says the difference between a natural event and a miracle is only one thing, frequency. If the sun were to rise once in our lifetimes, everyone would come rushing out with cameras and with our children. Wow, look at this. Look now, they talk about the, what are they called, the blood moon, the blue moon, the red moon, what are they calling it? The, 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 just the last day or two. Why? Because it happens not a, a very infrequently. But if it happens every day or happens every moment, we don't see any, and, and we take no interest in it. Why? Because we need a novelty. We need something fresh. But the truth is, as he says, it's only frequency. So nature is basically many miracles happening so often that you cease to appreciate them. 
So just because it's happening all the time, that doesn't make it less, ordinary, less uh, unique. So the truth is, a miracle is really seeing the extraordinary within the ordinary. Not allowing the surface level of nature and its consistency become like the, the water that conceals and covers the forces beneath it. The appreciation, I mentioned before, the leaf, the sunrise, the sunset. People who are plugged in into the very marrow of life and the excitement of life and the vibrancy are always alive because they don't see nature as another monotonous thing. Every sunset, every sunrise, every leaf, every winter, uh, uh, spring, summer, and fall, every movement in nature is an exciting event and completely, uh, completely new. So just because it happens one moment after the other doesn't make it less new. Think of our breathing. We breathe. I mentioned it earlier. A healthy person breathes 18 times a minute, meaning exhale and inhale 18 times in one minute. Children are that way. When we get a little older, it goes down because we don't breathe as well. But who even knows that? Who even counts? And then when you, then, and, and then when you go to a hospital, God forbid, and you see someone struggling to breathe and they're on a respirator or another way of something, and they, you see, then you suddenly think to yourself, oh, wow, what are the mechanisms necessary to work to be able to breathe? Think about it. The breath goes into your mouth, goes down your throat, into your lungs. What happens? It oxygenates it. Part of it goes into your blood. Then you exhale and get rid of the pollutants or the toxins or the carbon monoxide. And this process continues on. Hold your breath for a while and you suddenly realize, one second. If you don't inhale and exhale in a balanced way, it's not healthy. But that's only when you focus on it. So someone will say, so what happens? I breathe every second. Who cares? Yeah, well, if it was one second would stop, it could be life and death. So nature is simply a way of saying many miracles happening in multiple, in sequence, where you start losing sight and appreciating. People who appreciate life appreciate every moment in that way. Every moment is magical. Because every moment is bursting with energy. So nature, in that sense, becomes another power. It could either be something, okay, it's nature, so it's a natural thing, you know. But in truth is, it's not natural. It's extraordinary, packaged in the ordinary. And when you're able to um, recognize that, that alone brings you a new, a new uh, regenerative, a new uh, okay, uh, recharging your batteries because recognizing these forces at work. And I just gave one example with breath. Take other examples of everything in our lives, our minds working, the way we eat, the way we the digestive system, the nervous system, the circulatory system. These are all natural balanced, natural cycles, natural um, um, systems, I should say. That, as I said before, like a macrocosm reflects the natural systems out there because you find the same thing in nature in the larger world. But in truth, it's all really soulful forces at work that when you look beneath the surface and not just at the outer dimension, not just at the body, but also at the soul, then you see within matter, you see all the spirit and every piece has a deeper lesson, a deeper dimension. You know, um, they say 75% of the human body is water. And um, 
What's the percentage of water on earth? On the, in, in, also, two-thirds, 66%. The majority of earth is covered by water. The majority of a human being is water. We all began, as I mentioned earlier, nine months of our lives in our mother's womb, submerged in water. These are not accidents. They're not just happened to be. It's because we are all, as I said, symbiotic. The microcosm, macrocosm. Because water reflects our true nature. That's why we're so comfortable in water. When you submerge in water, you feel nurtured. Because for nine months you were nurtured. It's, you're surrounded by it. And that's why water has such a powerful metaphor in so many experiences of cleansing, even spiritual cleansing. The mikvah, the idea of water. The wellsprings, a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Me'adasatar, the pure waters of knowledge as compared to water. So water is symbolic of our essential beings. But we also have the other part of us, which is like land mammals. We're also people who walk on this earth. We're not fish in the sea. So in the, the, the Kabbalists describe, the mystics explain, that there are two components to each of us. We are people who are, on one hand, we are uh, water creatures, meaning that we are... Um, have a super, a super conscious or unconscious dimension to us, and then we have land, where a land creature is not attached to, it's not submerged in its source. Moses is called Moshe. Why is he called Moshe Moses? Because from water I drew him out of water. That's what Pharaoh's daughter did. And she called him Moshe. And they say, well, one second, he had other names. His, his Jewish parents, Amram and Chevet, uh, gave him a, a name, Tuvia or Toiv. Yechiel, there's all kinds of names. People don't even know those names. So how do you give him a name? Pharaoh's daughter gave him a name based on some incidental event that she pulled him out of water. So they explain because that really captures his essence. He was a water entity. He came from the spiritual worlds that are called the hidden worlds of water, the world of thought. Most people are connected to the world of speech, which is like a land mammal. But we too have both sides. Our souls are more watery, so to speak, and our bodies are more land. Our souls need to have being submerged in their source, in their spiritual sustenance. Our bodies can get away with feeling we're like independent. And the truth is that we need both. That's one example of, and again, we talk about water and land, two fundamental parts of nature, how they reflect inside each of us. Let's take the sun and the moon. What's the difference between the sun and the moon? They're both luminaries. They both give off light. But the sun generates light and the moon receives light. The soul is a, sun is a generator, and the, and the moon is a recipient, absorbs light. It reflects the light of the sun. But it's not like a mirror. It's not like just a mirror. When you look at the moon, you wouldn't even know that it reflects the sun, because it doesn't look like the same. And it actually has its own power. For example, you never see two people who love each other stare at the sun, but you'll see them gazing at a moon. It has a certain romantic, mysterious aura about it, the moon. It has its own power. It affects the tides on earth. But it's only a reflection of the sun because the reflection is not just a reflection. It's another entity. So again, how do the mystics explain this? They say that we too have two personalities within us. There's a sun personality and a moon personality. A sun personality is one that is consistent. It shines all the time. It gives off light. But then there's another part of us which is the absorber, the listener within us. And that goes through shifts like the lunar cycles. 
the first quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter, the new moon. The sun doesn't have a new. The sun is always shining. I mean, it has sunspots, there's some shifts, but it doesn't have that. It is a consistent source of energy. So in life, we need both. We need to be sun entities, where we have consistency, where we shine and give off. But we also have to have a moon part to our personalities, which is to be recipients, to absorb, and to go through changes, and to go through cycles. And just about when we extinguish, we, about, we get reborn again, like the moon. So you see the sun and the moon again reflected inside of each of us. Literally every piece of nature has its parallel within the human being and has its lessons. Which tells us that even when you're completely bored and you have nothing to do, why don't you just look around the nature around you and learn some lessons? It's probably there for you to teach you something that you need to learn right there and then. So it's much more than just the calm of nature. We're taking a nice walk in a quiet, uh, in a quiet woods or uh, sitting near a, uh, a brook of water and the gurgling waters calming you or seeing the power of a tremendous waterfall. I mean, whatever it may be, they all have effect. But then there's that final step, which is not just seeing its beauty and taking that in, but also learning from it. Rabbi Akiva, where did he learn? Rabbi Akiva, the greatest sage of all. Kula Libad Rabbi Akiva says the whole Talmud goes Rabbi Akiva. Where did he become the Rabbi Akiva that he was? To age 40, he was ignorant. He didn't study anything. He had never the opportunity. Then he met this beautiful woman who they ultimately married, and she convinced him to begin studying and to begin a new path, in his, a, new, uh, to, to a, a new journey in his life. And he said, I'm 40 years old already. You know, 40 years old. And then 40 years old was even older than 40 years old today. And he was pondering on this issue, what he should do with his life. And the, and the Medrash tells us a story. He's walking in nature. Perfect place to meditate, to ponder, to muse, to um, contemplate on his life. And he walks by uh, a, a little uh, riverlet, small little brook of water. He's watching it, the water rushing. The water run, not rushing, water running. And then he looks, there's a little waterfall where the, the water hits a place where the ground, um, this, uh, what's the word for it, is recedes. And the water, it's like, a, and then he looks on this side, he suddenly sees a sight that was very odd. He sees stones. The stones are being obviously um, splashed upon by the waters. But one stone had a perfect circle, like we're drilled right through it. Perfect circle. You don't usually see a stone with a perfect circle in it. He's wondering, how did this stone get here? Where did it come from? Who made how did that circle? How did that hole? How bore the hole? And as he kept observing, he realized that the water, the waterfall, as it was splashing, a drop of water kept on going through that hole. So he realized over the years, drop, 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 it ultimately bore a complete hole through the stone. So he said to himself his lesson. An inanimate stone that has no spirit and has no soul and has no mind of its own. Even that can be pierced with persistence by just drops of water. It wasn't with a drill. It wasn't with a storm. It wasn't any powerful uh, wave. It was drop by drop by drop. The, out, the, the antithesis of the Chinese water torture. 
So he said, if that's the case with a stone, how much more so a human being? The Torah is compared to water. That if I commit myself and I start studying, no matter what I was like till now, even though I have not learned anything, my stone, my resistance can also be pierced, my personality can be pierced, and I can be a changed human being. So then his bride, what she had inspired him to do, was confirmed. But where did he learn it? He learned it from nature. Which tells you, and it changed a man's life. And as does the man, changed history. Because Rabbi Akiva went on to become, as I said, the greatest sage, came back later with 24,000 students. The whole Talmud are basically students of Rabbi Akiva. This man who did not know whether he can make a change in his life. It's interesting. I meet many people in their 40s or 40 years old. It's an age where people, I don't know, we call it a middle-age crisis. I don't know if it's mid-age. 40 is young. For some people it's old. I guess it's all relative. But regardless, it's an age. It's an interesting age. I've met quite a few people who began their journeys, their spiritual journeys around that age, or a little younger, a little older. Not necessarily that age, but my point is that here's a tremendous lesson, again, how nature can serve us. Spiritual lessons and benefits. So next time you have a question, you may want to call a rabbi, you may want to call a mentor, you may want to read a book. But sometimes the best answer will come to you from nature. God will send you a natural event. You've got to keep your eyes open. Because if you don't keep your eyes open, if Rabbi Kiva would have ignored the water, and ignored the stone, and just moved on, he wouldn't have had the lesson. To keep your eyes open. And always realize there's messages coming to you all the time from nature. And not just they're coming, they're embedded in there in order for you to learn something. It's like a messenger. It's an answer to your prayers at times. So you have to keep your eyes open. You have to recognize and be uh, humble. And not just think you have it all figured out, that you could always learn from something. And you have to recognize that nature is not just a machine. It, ha- it's, it has a soul within it. It has a message within it. It has lessons that are reflecting your own life back to you. You look at nature, there's something in it that reflects who you are. Which is why you see it. And different times will need different lessons. This is wherever you turn, you'll find something. Tremendous lessons. We talk about the 15th of Shvat, just from the world of trees, how trees grow. We all want to grow. Where do you think you learn to grow? Look at a tree and you learn. You need roots to grow. You need a strong foundation, a, a, a trunk. And you need to branch out and bear fruit. You know how many lessons right there in life? A tree is the only thing that grows in two directions at once. The deeper the roots, the better the fruits. So if you have deep roots going down, you'll have, a big, you'll have the foundational elements to grow up. Many people say, I'll just grow. But you'll realize all growth comes from that which came before us. We stand on the shoulders of giants before us. Deep roots, when you're rooted to the past, you can grow into the future. If you think you're going to just start your own thing, you may succeed, but you don't have that type of... that. Uh, that, um, what's the word that I want to say, that solid grounding that roots provide. The roots of something. Now, only roots, of course, are not enough because roots are just the past, are just what you're rooted to. Then you have to use those roots to grow, and as you grow, you have to branch out. At the same time, you need that consistent foundational element, like I said, the roots and the trunk. And ultimately, a fruit has to bear, a tree has to bear fruit. I'm talking about fruit-bearing trees. That's not enough to just be a good tree, but it's also a tree that will bear fruit, 
which is perpetual, because those fruit will bear seeds, and those seeds will give birth to a new tree, and on and on and on. So it means that one piece of vegetation gives birth to another. And you can learn many lessons from that as well. And within trees themselves, there's an oak tree and a maple tree and an apple tree. Each has their own particular lessons. So nature is all around us and is providing us all the time with messages and lessons and ultimately recognizing that, as I said earlier, we're all part of one grand symphony, like different musical notes in the grand symphony. Every component of nature, plus us as human beings, are all part of that story. You read the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, they were placed in the garden. That garden is nature, with trees and animals and a sun and a moon and stars and all that the Torah, the Bible, describes in the beginning of Genesis. And then comes the human being who ties it all together and says all this was created, all this was placed here in order for us to elevate it and to express a, divine, a higher divine glory, something deeper and greater. That was then, but the same is now as well. Now it's true, you look out the window, you look at a place like the city, you say, where there's, no, there's almost no nature. All you see is concrete buildings made out of stone and metal and bricks. And once in a while, they leave a little room for a tree among all the concrete. Once upon a time, all this was a wilderness. It was natural. But we covered the earth with our concrete. But that's, that was also a lesson in life, you know? It's true, they did carve out a central park here in Manhattan, a prosper park in Brooklyn. But it's like almost we gave nature permission to emerge from time to time for our edification. So for lunch hour, you can go to the central park and think. But remember, once upon a time, all this was all natural. It was humans that superimposed there. Now, I'm not saying it's all bad. You know, you civilize a place and you, you turn the place into a civilization. If you remain a sensitive human being and a humble human being and respect the divine nature of things, then by all means. But sometimes the world, the, the cities of concrete and of metal and of stone that we've created hide and have replaced the, the, the natural elements in our lives. Like I mentioned before, we have to always remember the natural is what we're looking for and never to create something that in a way challenges that. Think of technology. Technology is a great tool, but it could also enslave us. How much technology, you talk about connections, everyone wants to be connected, mobile. Seems great, right? But is it really cultivating better friendships? Are we becoming more uh, sensitive human beings? So as they say, junk in, junk out. If you're a sensitive human being, technology perhaps can serve that, because then you can communicate with other people and express your love and your feelings. But it could also become, just like television, that you live vicariously through technology and, and you forget that, you, the, the, that we, we lose the art of just sitting one-on-one and looking at each other's eyes, heart-to-heart conversations, soul-to-soul, or texting. And with all the connections, it also can create an unbelievable depersonalization as well. This is where we allow man-made objects to undermine the natural human being. But if we use technology to amplify our humanity, to amplify the natural elements, then it's a blessing. If you use it to uh, escape from your natural, you know, instead of living your life, you live through other people, through characters, through actors, actresses, through Hollywood, through television. So then what you're doing is you become a machine. 
and you let others live life, and you are being entertained and living vicariously through others. So we have to always see the world as almost like a battle between the natural self and the man-made creations and the man-made entities that we've created, and never let the man-made replace the natural, only enhance the natural. That's our challenge. So, my friends, nature. Nature is a lesson, is a teacher, is a guide, is a mentor, is our, a partner with us in life, and is always there for us to learn things from it. But at the same time, we ultimately do have control over the nature around us, because we can destroy it or we can elevate it. And it's our mission, is to use nature and as a springboard for deeper growth. That when you in, interact with nature, you realize it's part of the sacred universe that God created, that when you take an apple off a tree, or any other way that you partake, take a swim in the water, you realize this is all gifts given to us, not for indulgence purposes, but for us to elevate the world around us. Which is why, the, again, the mystics and the thinkers say that when we consume a food, if you use this energy and strength you get from that food for positive purposes, then the food thanks you for elevating it to be a partner with you in a good deed. Because the strength that you have doing a good deed came from that food. But if you use that sustenance, that strength, to do something to indulge, to hurt somebody, then that food has a very serious complaint against you. I, I was a very innocent tree, uh, apple growing on a tree. Why did you put, consume me, tear me, off my, tear me off my tree, eat me, and then you use that strength to hurt another person? Is that what I was created, to help you hurt someone else? That's the way we speak about this. As an expression, one of the expressions goes, that a wicked worst person that walks on the street, the cobblestones cry out, what right do you have to walk on me? I never transgressed. I never hurt anyone. You're a wicked person. So that's another interesting way how we look at the nature. Nature is there for us to elevate it, not to us to use it or abuse it or just indulge in it. I can go on many, many other messages and lessons, but I thought that it's a very, something, one of these, as I said, underappreciated elements in life is the natu- natural world and even our own nature and to learn these lessons from us, for, for the lessons that we can derive from it. So may we all uh, make our peace with our nature and not just peace, but also um, learn to elevate the nature around us and the nature in turn will elevate us and each learn from each other and grow with each other until a point where we live in a world where there is a seamlessness, a harmony between us and the natural world instead of a battle or instead of conquest, not conquering nature. What you want to do is elevate it. You want to do is use it as a springboard for greater growth. And there is um, a series of Beautiful statements made, many, many, about how nature serves that role. There's even that expression, there's a perikashira, there's a beautiful chapter written called The Song of Nature, which is the songs that each creature, and not just each creature, even the planets and the trees and the minerals, the songs each one sings in divine praise. Because every part of existence has its, its, uh, its voice, and sings its divine praise, and sings and connects on that level. So if we listen closely, we cup our ears, maybe we could hear some of the songs of nature that sing to us. I remember once at a weekend retreat, um, it was a camping retreat. I was invited to go, and first I said, am I going to a camping retreat? It was in Woodstock. But I finally went, and the real professional camper set me up. They set up, a, they pitched a tent for me. It was Shabbos morning. 
And I was lying in the tent. It was really comfortable, actually. It was a beautiful evening. And, uh, you know, if they do it right, you can have a good, nice, comfortable sleep. And it's outside, and fresh air and all that. I mean, it's in the tent. And around 6 o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, I suddenly hear flutes, like a musical, a musical uh, orchestra playing for me. So I said that they know that it's Shabbos. They wouldn't come. Like, you know, so I thought outside my tent, a bunch of people came and decided to wake me up with a beautiful symphony. I look outside, there's no one there. And then I realized they pitched my tent in a place, it's on a mountain, where in the morning when the winds begin blowing, it literally sounds like flutes. I couldn't believe it. It was like, I mean, it wasn't a, a, a song we know, but it was just so beautiful. And then they told me, yes, that's what they did. They didn't tell me how they were doing it. So when I woke up, you know, certain places where the winds blow and the, between the mountains created these sounds. So I realized, wow, you know, how many other sounds are there that we don't even hear because we're so busy with our rush hours and the outside static and all the, the turbulence that doesn't let us hear the subtle voice, the curled mamadaka, the, the gentle, subtle, and soft voice. But there is a soft voice in nature and there's a soft voice in us. So may we all sing our songs together and join together in one great, grand cosmic symphony. Everyone have a very good week, a blessed week. And we're here every Wednesday. Please share your thoughts. Share, like, what are all the different expressions? Um, friend, comment. Yeah, We broadcast here every week besides the live event that we do here on both on Facebook and on YouTube. And some Instagram, a little, right? A little bit. Okay. So we're not over all the channels, as let's put it that way. Everyone be well. This has been Simon Jacobson, Meaningful Life. And I want to dedicate the class to um, the dedication. It was dedicated. Let me just look it up, if I may. Well, you can see it on the thing. Is it there? Just give me a moment, please. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Just a moment, please. Okay. There we are. Okay. Dedicated by Eliza Scar. Scar. In honor of Yeshua's and Nechamas for her family and all of Klal Yisrael. Thank you so much for that. If you want to dedicate a class, you can just go online to MeaningfulLife.com and also to general all the resources we have on our website. Again, this is Ms. Simon Jacobson, Meaningful Life Center, MeaningfulLife.com. Everyone be blessed and have a good week. Until next Wednesday, everyone should have only blessings. Thank you. But done.